just how much does the weather impact commodity prices and why every single commodities trader has always got their eyes on the price of natural gas. The pig disease driving up pork prices, how the changing taste in India and the reduction in beef livestock in the US is driving up milk prices in Australia. We cover the impacts of global climate change and what this means for food production, plus what we all need to know about genetically modified food to ensure even global supply. And finally, we touch on why high wheat prices often lead to an uprising in unstable countries. I'm Shay Russell and welcome back to Cocktails and Commodities, the resource podcast where macro analysis meets mining insights. Don't forget to hit that like button so you don't miss out on all of the great things we talk about here. The information covered in today's podcast is general in nature and not financial advice. This is part two of my conversation with Sean Mod of Modco Capital, an agricultural commodities trader based out in New Jersey. Let's get on with it. We've got a lot to cover. Ukraine, Russia, and wheat. Now, oh, you touched on this in our introduction today. Now, this has been highly topical, as you know, back in, or oh, testing my memory now, back in March, April, May last year, we saw wheat prices triple in mm. weeks, mere weeks. I think it was crazy, like 21 days. And yep. obviously, there's other things that drove those prices up. We had the Black Sea Grain Initiative that reopened the corridor. Um, what's happening now? Because uh, I think we discussed this again on Rick's boat or, you know, how the impending Black Sea Corridor was going to be shut. Now, Russia has shut that door, well, as much as you can shut the door on a port. There are certainly mm. blockades in place. And I believe there's rumours of Turkey uh, or Turkey, sorry, uh, going to be getting involved to maybe try and reopen this corridor. Now, you've got your finger more on the pulse of what's happening here. So what is going to happen to maybe wheat prices? And I know the Ukraine, this is a really long-winded question, so good luck picking out of it, well, yeah, how you're yeah. going to answer it. I know the Ukraine has been shipping things up through the Danube River, but mm-hmm. are we going to see that corridor open up again or is Russia really going to dominate the wheat market? So I think one thing that's majorly changed from last year to this year um, is the winter in Europe. The reason why the Black Sea has been so prized by Russia for hundreds and hundreds of years, ever since Catherine the Great, it was its only warm sea port. It was the only way Russia could export anything or even have basically like a navy uh a year round so the cons- when you say warm sea do you mean not freeze up correct yes yes exactly exactly so 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 in the winter it won't freeze up so they've always got basically a conduit to get their stuff out uh, and then so two things basically happened was this winter not only was Europe saved by a warm winter not having to rely on Russia's gas, which saved their butt big time, um, but also it meant that Russia went, well, hang on a minute, we can move wheat year-round elsewhere, and we've been able to do it. And then on top of that, you had China uh, basically remove their import restrictions on Russian wheat. And China, who's a very large wheat producer who's predominantly self-sufficient, now all of a sudden uh, started importing uh, Russian wheat. So the 
and it's what's what's sort of crazy is is as you say, the wheat prices and other grain prices completely skyrocketed after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And but then what brought those prices down, ironically enough, was the sheer size of the Russian wheat crop for that year and the Black Sea grain deal being able to move that stuff out. So where we are currently now at the moment, and I'm glad you pronounced it because once again, it's one of those things where you, you read it, but you don't actually know how to pronounce it. Turkey, hopefully that's uh, correct. It, it sounds good. <laughs> I, I, don't have faith in my Australian to get that right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with that. That's, 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 that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good. Um, where we now stand currently at the moment is is so Bloomberg was saying they reckon next week. Other media sources were saying that Turkey is De- Drogan's uh, president is definitely trying to get a deal, uh, a meet with uh, Putin to basically get the Black Sea grain deal back on the table, um, because what it means for Ukraine is they're running pretty quickly out of time. Like by September, so we're in the last day of August. So even though Ukraine's been able to find alternatives to move their wheat, like through the Danube, as you mentioned, since the Black Sea represented nearly half of their exports, Ukraine's just got this supply glut of wheat which has completely depressed their prices. And so now what Ukrainian farmers are actually considering is whether or not to plant next year's harvest or or whether they're going to plant sunflower seeds which have a higher premium but the problem with the sunflower seeds is is that they deteriorate the soil so you almost i can't think of a better way to put this it sounds really offensive but you you're you're, you're raping the land mm. um because it just yeah, but, but you get a higher price for it, but it's almost like that cost-benefit analysis. So Ukrainian farmers right now, even though they can get the wheat to the Danube ports, half of them aren't even breaking even. So most of them are just like, this, this is... So cheap wheat is good in one sense, but if the farmer's not breaking even and can't make a business, because what a farmer does, particularly with grains, you just swap the grain. Like you, instead of growing this, you grow this. What would happen to wheat prices if Ukraine didn't actually plant wheat and they opted to go to sunflower seeds? Because that's got to be taking a whole stack of wheat out of the market. Correct, correct, correct. So, and I'll, I'll subject myself to saying I may be incorrect when I say this, but I think Ukraine is definitely in the top five. I believe like they're the, the number four wheat exporter in the world. But please, if if I misstated that they're definitely but it would have a huge impact um and so but what then that means for prices for wheat where i'm sitting in the united states that can be quite different um because there's a lot of domestic issues concerning united states wheat production since it trades out of chicago and kansas that's what they're looking at uh, but it is the tail sort of leading the dog in terms of, okay, if Ukraine and Russia can't export more wheat, then is there an opportunity 
now for the United States to reclaim its crown, which unfortunately gave up to Russia a number of years ago after showing them how to grow wheat properly. <laughs> 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 Look Oops. at our ghost from Christmas past. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Generally speaking, rising wheat prices have always led to revolution. Really? In, in fact, in fact, I read a great biography on George Washington by Ron Chernow, amazing author. He's written a book on, uh, I'll look at it right now, by Grant um, uh, George Washington. but that even after the revolution, and this is sort of an unknown fact, the inflation uh, with that, you know, because basically all the farmers were all fighting the war and stuff. There's no one really tending to the farms and other host of reasons where wars are just extremely expensive and lead to inflation. Um, there was actually an uprising and the American military shot citizens for uprising against. So it was almost like a... A Boston massacre again, but instead of like the Boston massacre, which was over the the stamp tax and the tea tax, this was actually Americans rebelling against um, the the runaway inflation. Uh, and the same thing happened during the Civil War too. Actually, as a matter of fact, so the Confederate heart hub of Richmond, Virginia, rebelled against the Confederates when wheat prices went through the bloody roof. So there is definitely something to be watched for. And um, I'm, so, I'm sorry for sort of rambling here but at the moment, but if you look at where a lot of the wheat coming from the Black Sea grain was going to, was going to pretty political, um, you know, unstable nations, let's say like Egypt, Cameroons, Tunisia, a lot of North Africa and, and the Middle East, where, as we saw during the Arab Spring, that's what actually got lit the fuse. And that's actually what also lit the fuse with the uh, Iranian Revolution. Uh, sorry, not the Iranian Revolution, but the latest Iranian uprising. Uh, it was actually the first, first spike was in response to the Russian invasion. Wheat prices went up. The Iranian government ended the bread subsidies. That's what sort of got people out onto the streets. So it's it's definitely something to, to watch far beyond like portfolios and stuff, but just geopolitically as well. That's a major ramifications, yeah. That's a really good thing to keep in the back of our mind, especially to in Australia. Australia has the advantage of basically being able to feed themselves, which is a, right. a which very, very few countries. America is also in the same position. But nonetheless, we're still victims of a global price. Mm -hmm. So it is a really good point to make is even though our harvest will sustain us and we can export let, uh, we can export what we don't eat, we are still victims of the price rises completely beyond our control and they can take Absolutely. months to filter down the yep. supply chain. Speaking Correct. of filtering down the supply chain, now uh, I don't know how long ago you left Australia for the US. 2007. Right, so that was before the milk price wars between right. our duopoly, Coles and Woolworths. Now, That's this right. was a contentious subject as um, it actually had horrific ramifications for dairy farmers um, where Coles and Woolworths decided that they were going to only offer milk to consumers at $1 a litre and they basically really? – um, 
yeah, it was honest, honestly, it, it crippled our local dairy industry. It was, it was a horrific wow. um, action from the market. People loved it because they thought they were getting milk for cheap. And yeah, it's great when you're buying milk for two dollars a liter, uh, for you know, two dollars okay. for so two that, liters. That expl- it explains something I was just going to say. It's funny. Yeah. But I'll go ahead and show you, sorry. No, 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 that's okay because it's a really unique situation that we found ourselves in and it existed for a few years. The problem is it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, They realised, Coles and Woolworths, after they probably had no dairy farmers left to go get the milk from, um, I might be being a bit facetious here about this, but basically they realised that driving down the prices weren't sustainable anymore. And now, you Mm. know, in Australia, again, in Australian dollars, Two litres of milk is going to set you back so anywhere between 5 and $7, depending on what brand you buy. But this isn't actually because of our rising production costs. I think for the first time in a decade, dairy farmers mm-hmm. are in profit, which is amazing mm-hmm. considering mm-hmm. that they were nearly all put out of business. Tell me, why are milk prices rising in the US? Because we're currently victims of the global milk price, which uh, sets the base for the Australian milk price. Yeah, so let, let me start. You're right. So there's definitely some like global issues, but before we get and domestic issues too with the United States, I'm glad you you clarified about the Coles and Woolworths because I think that feeds into um, a consequence of the deregulation of the dairy industry in 2000. Yes. Uh, so, so, side effect of that, I didn't know about the Coles and Woolworths, so I'm always never ashamed to admit what I don't know. Um, so, but let's start, before we get to the United States, let's take a look at India, because India is actually the world's largest producer and consumer of dairy. I had uh, no and, idea this is where the story was going to start. <laughs> yeah, well, no, but I, I, thought, I, thought, I, thought, I thought it'd be good, I thought it'd awesome. be good to start there. Um, and I'm totally guessing here, totally guessing, but I think it may have something to do with because cows are considered very sacred in, in India with, with the Hindu culture. Maybe that's that's why their cows are their dairy cows and they're not used for meat. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of it. So, but they've got this problem in India. One's a, a disease thing. Another thing's also like consumer tasting. Ice cream is increasing in popularity in India. Yeah, uh, which is basically you know stoking more demand for dairy products. Uh, the problem is on the supply front in India is they've got this disease called lumpy skin disease, uh, which basically creates like boils or big blisters on, on the cow and can end up killing them. Um, and then that's wiped out part of the herd. So now India's actually had to move to start importing cows. Uh, if we move to the United States, what's Interesting about the United States, it's almost parallel to what was what's happening in Australia, uh, where you've got basically um, record cattle prices, beef cattle prices. You've got record beef cattle prices in the United States um, because beef cows right now are currently at a 60-year low in terms of the numbers of cows. Uh, when I say cow, that means a, a mama cow able to produce a calf. That that herd is so low that it's basically down in the, in the numbers of the 60s. Um, and so typically what was happening in the dairy industry was, was when the dairy cow, quote-unquote, retired, uh, they would process the dairy cow as like cheap ground beef. Now what they're doing, though, because of the 
herd size, they're actually taking dairy calves and using them as feeder cattle to basically supplement the and rebuild the herd. Uh, and they're also importing cows from Mexico too. In fact, it was reported by the US Department of Agriculture in the last cattle on feed report, which was two weeks ago. Uh, so imports of live live cattle from Mexico to use as feeder cattle, that's basically, you know, uh, cattle that you're going to fatten up, um, have increased like, you know, 46% year on year. So they're trying to replace the herd. The other thing which is similar in Australia is there's a labour shortage. And so to run a dairy farm is more labour intensive than a cattle farm. And because there's a labour shortage and you've got high cattle prices for beef, you've got a lot of farmers basically just going, like as you said, it's very profitable. But if you haven't got the workers to do it, you can't, you can't, you know, capitalise on that. Um, and that's sort of a similar situation in Australia. So now that you've got India and the United States with those issues. <clears throat> but the other thing with what makes sort of Australia unique, and I think maybe this is part of the reason why, is because since 2002, there's been a constant steady decline of milk production mm. in Australia. Just like it's, like, it's like just a graph going all the way down. Um, and part of the explanation is because the deregulation, which sort of made, made sense, we had the federal government pay a lot of the dairy farmers up in the north in the hotter temperatures. Um, they basically paid them out and went, oh, you know, raising dairy farms isn't as, doing dairy cows isn't as good as in the more temperate regions of Victoria and Tasmania, which, by the way, um, you know, Victoria and Tasmania should hold on to that for as long as they bloody well can, being temperate climates and prime farming territory. Uh, you know, hopefully politicians there and, and planning councils and developers can use their brains and not basically take up arable farmland space uh, because, I mean, in terms of what Victoria and Tasmania can provide is that. I, I hear good news, Shay, that suppose what the Murray River's now basically it's back up to near, near capacity or is that? Um, possibly. I, you know, as you said that, I just realised I have not been following those stories closely enough, but our dams are after some really good rainfall across Victoria. I can only speak to Victoria. Right, uh, right, right. Uh, 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 you know, near full. Right. Unlike probably right. when you left when uh, crippling drought and maybe even have been under water restrictions back then. Cor correct. Yeah. Correct. So but, so, but even those parts of Victoria, um, because of their natural rainfall, even in those drought conditions, they weren't relying upon irrigation systems, which is mm. huge, huge. That's huge. So there's certain parts of Victoria and Tasmania where even under drought conditions, and I don't want to look over blow it, um, you know, because I'm sure I'm going to have some farmer go, you bloody wanker, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but as acknowledged by the, uh, this was acknowledged by the United States Department of Agriculture, the attaché in Canberra, I'm um, saying that you've got prime 
prime farming territory in Victoria and Tasmania. And it was almost like with a hint of like envy or jealousy, like, hey, don't mess it up. Yeah, <laughs> so like us. I, yeah, so hopefully that answers that question. And so, and because the labor issue also now with Australia is, is once again, it keeps, it's funny how we keep coming back to this, these same topics, whether, uh, but this is about COVID um, and the restrictions on, you know, having labor. Um, so obviously a lot of farm labor was people that traveled from overseas, um, backpackers. When I worked on a farm, you know, a lot of the people there were, were backpackers um, from overseas. That's, that's, just, that's just what they did. So that's been an issue, labor, um, currency, supply, um, the deregulation. And then as you mentioned, the Woolworths, uh, Coles debacle, that yep. basically, yeah, it's great to pay low prices, but at what point? It, you know, perfect example for the farmers, right? Like what well, Ukrainian farmers, like, okay, yeah, it's great. U- Ukrainian wheat's 165 bucks a ton. But if they're not breaking even, guess what? They're going to stop, they're going to stop bloody growing. So you're going to pay more for it. You end up paying more in the long run. That's now, right. our time. Our time is rapidly drawing to a close, and I'm so thankful you gave me your Thursday evenings. But I've actually, assuming we don't derail this conversation further, which is highly possible between the two of us, I've actually got a couple more questions I want to bust through. Go ahead. First of all, a very serious one. Now, I'm actually going, I did find my notes, and I'm actually going to read from them to put this question to you. This Mm. is a contentious topic, and nobody actually likes talking about it because it's been politicised, and that is climate change. But the problem is um, the threats of climate changing patterns are incredibly real for our food sources. So I've got some data here. So 38% of all landmass in the world is used for farming. Essentially one third of that is um, for growing grain. The two thirds of that is for paddocks. Now, put a better way, 12% of the landmass available feeds the world. Um, Yet only 21% of global crops are irrigated. 80% of our arable land relies on rainfall. Now, we have modern-day farming practices based on medieval weather patterns. Tell me, how much – I mean, obviously nobody can predict what's going to happen, but Mm. are you seeing changing weather patterns now impacting agriculture practices? And where do you see the climate – uh, climate change, uh, how does that impact our food supply change uh, further down the line? Because we can't grow things where they need to grow until we know where the weather's going to be. Correct, correct. Yeah, that's a, uh, oof, that's, 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 that's a big issue. Um, so I guess what, what's, un- let's, let's, let's start with like what's, what's unknown. Well, no, no, let's, let's do this even better. Let's let's start with what is known. What is known is that climate change is happening. Um, what's unknown and is subject for debate is is it a natural phenomenon or is it man-made? Right, that's up for debate. Um, but I think most people with common sense would agree that what we're seeing now is a concern. Is it going to be something temporary that we can look back in two years and go, oh, geez, or is it something more permanent and dire? But we need to be aware of the fact of 
how that's going to change and how can we address it. And I can't, even though we've been discussing agricultural commodities a lot, because I, I mean, you've got record prices and things like cocoa, like even when you had the Ebola crisis uh, back in 2013, 2012, 2013, that the prices have still exceeded that. And, that, and, and Ebola was really based on fear of that you've got this contagious disease uh, that was basically going to stop people from not being able to do the work in the fields they weren't going to be able to harvest. You've got the prices now far exceeding that because it's just not going to be able to produce. Everywhere I'm seeing when it comes to agricultural commodities, it's all about the climate's either getting hotter or the climate is getting wetter. And part of this could be, depending on where you're talking in part, depending on what part of the world you're talking about it, some of it can be La Nina or the end of La Nina and some of it can be El Nino, like what we're seeing this year could be El Nino. Um, but that's the jury's yet out on that. We, we, we don't know. Is this just part in certain parts of the world, part of that temporary pattern of La Nina and El Nino? But El Nino and La Nina don't affect everywhere around the world. So it doesn't explain what is actually happening. Um, so when it comes to agriculture, I, I don't think I can address agriculture before sort of addressing, you know, the, the, the larger issue in terms of energy, which is that, you know, wherever you sit on the debate in terms of energy, whether fossil fuel or renewable energy, I think one thing everyone can agree upon is that no one disagrees that clean air is good for the environment and it's good for human health, right? I'm not necessarily saying that we won't be able to swap out fossil fuels with renewable energy. I just think we are not currently there at the moment because when I look back in history, um, any time one form of transportation or one form of energy has replaced another, it's never been through the government banning it. It's never been through the government saying, we're banning horses, now we're using steam rail. Yeah. We're banning the Ponytail Express, then so we're going to use a telegraph. No, it's because some technological in innovation replaced it. And maybe, maybe, hopefully, there is going to be something there that's going to be able to replace it. But where we are right now and today, and I think, the invasion of Ukraine should be a huge wake-up call to everybody, is we don't have the infrastructure in place to be able to fight it. So to get back to your question in terms of how this impacts agricultural, um, this raises an even larger third rail issue, and that's genetically modified crops. Mm. And that's huge, huge, because... What are the positive genetically modified crops? Like, let's put aside the health concerns and the, and the rarest of it, but let's, let's just go, what's it done? It's increased the yield. We haven't had a famine in the West. Yes, we've had famines in Africa and that, but that was really through government corruption and, and warlords and control of resources and things like that. There's always been food. For the last 40 years, there's been enough food. 
it's just a matter of getting it to the right places and corruption, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the last huge, huge famine, which was really a famine, famine, was, was China, where it was like, because they killed all the sparrows. Um, so there's, there's the good thing about genetically modified food. What they're now working on, and China, interestingly enough, is looking at this right now. They're now moving towards, they've done GMO tests because they're looking for drought-resistant rice. They're looking for uh, how to get more yield. So it's this trade-off between, you know, Frankenstein's science and um, food security. So how do we trade those two off? So that's that's sort of the the challenge is because in terms of keeping what my limited knowledge, keeping things grown organic is you can't get the same amount of yield. You can't get the same type of production. You can't get the same type of resistance to pests and all these other issues. I mean, if you look at what pests are doing to the orange groves, um, or if you look at what, you know, uh, 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 the, the cocoa crop, like the, the problem with that right now is, is a, fung, a fungus side. If there's some, you know, agricultural company that's working out there that can do it, um, and if, if they can do it without chemicals and if they can do it in an organic way, then that's fantastic. But I, I believe that's that's the challenge we have. Um, and, and the other thing too probably just to say about fossil fuels as well, and I'm not paid by the oil and gas industry or anything like that, um, but, but besides electricity, just in terms of like things like sneakers, right, like I mean your sneaker, the foam in it, is made out of a petrochemical foam. Mm-hmm. Um, petrochemicals make a lot of medicines. So to say get rid of fossil fuels, you're not just talking about electricity, right? And then there's a whole other range of things to, to, to go with. So You've raised, I'm going to interject simply because it yeah, goes go to show there's no simple answer when it comes to food production because it is reliant on so many inputs. Um, And this is probably why this is going to be an evolving conversation for us, hopefully Mm -hmm. over the years ahead while our um, respective content platforms um, evolve. Um, Another thing that you did leave out of the um, genetically modified food is that food is no longer grown for flavour. It is grown for longevity. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And that is so it can survive our transport system. So people, you know, strawberries are growing in, uh, I think, like, let, let, let's, let's say Spain. I might have actually got the wrong fruit product. But that's so they can be shipped to the UK seven days later and still be fresh. You know, they've got to Correct. get all through those border controls. So genetically modified food isn't new, but it's what we've got to do to make sure that the population, the global population continues to eat because there is no shortage of food as you pointed out, but it is the accessibility and the viability of production is it very important and maintaining that through an energy system that is currently uh, undergoing uh, a hundred trillion, well, probably will be a hundred trillion dollar transformation over the next 30 to 40 years while ensuring that we can still grow to eat 
um, and mm. access food. It's not a, and it was a bit of a loaded question that I threw you, I'll be honest, <laughs> but because it is a complex topic and as it I is. said, it can't be answered in one podcast. It's probably no, sort no. of something that needs to be boiled down so everybody can understand those moving parts. And this is just a taste of what it would take um, to ensure the, the, the food chain um, continues to move as the world changes. Well, that, that's, evolve, that's, I should say. Yeah, well, that, that's what I appreciate, Shay, is, is like, you know, being able to sit down and have like an open conversation, use some common sense and not just get all, you know, bent out of shape because everything's just so polarised at the moment with, you know, constantly negative news and just being able to sit down and, you know, express an opinion and go, oh, geez, I didn't think of that. Like, I... That's 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 how we, we we need to get back more to more of that. Certainly, and also too from price points of view, as you've pointed out, some very real things are happening in the agricultural supply chain. Um, you know, there's people pushing back asking for better wages. There's fuel inputs that have gone up. Price rises on food, um, based on my previous analysis, tells me it's not going away. And when mm. our respective central banks wrestle inflation back under control, there are still going to be questions around why our food prices are so high. Yes. And it's got nothing yes. to do with money printing. And this is Correct. sort of bringing our conversation right back to where we started. It's Correct. about trying to understand as simply as possible the intricacies of agriculture and why we're going to see huge price rises all the way along the supply chain well beyond, you know, central banks raising rates and supposed, you know, the I wouldn't say the death of money printing. I'm not convinced that's going away anytime soon. So no. it was it was a really big question. Now, Sean, we gotta wrap this up. It's been a long yeah, night for you. But, no, but don't no, you go fine. anywhere because I have two questions for you. All right. Now, first and foremost, um, it's time to the fun portion of the evening. Let's say we're back on Rick's boat and hopefully we get back to Rick's boat next year. Tell me, when we get to the bar, what cocktail will Rick be buying us? I would have to say, and I'm going to go on a limb here, so if you don't like it, uh, an espresso martini. Have you tried one of them before? So Do you hate them? I I don't love them. Given I've got a coffee addiction, right. I think I would. But I did go yeah. to a bar recently and all the uh, cocktail purists out there will probably keel over and die saying this. They had an espresso martini on tap. So it was like next to your uh. average. Yeah. See, I knew that had happened. And I hate to say this and I'm going to sound like a dirty bogan when this comes out. Very uniquely Australian phrase. I enjoyed it. I did like the espresso well, martini on tap. There you go. <laughs> Um, yeah. So espresso martini would be your cocktail of choice. Yeah, I, I, re but I reckon. But not from the I tap. Reckon, I mean, listen, I'm not, you know, Mr. Fancy Pants, so I wouldn't have hoity-toity <laughs> like, ugh, nah, bash that. You're from Tyab and so, Frankston, mate. Ex like, exactly. We already know. Exactly. Just, now, you know, just stick it in my veins. like. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we go, I actually do have a Bonus bogan question. So for Ooh. any Australian listening, I know a lot of Australians cringe with this phrase and I normally couldn't do this with an international guest or any other guest, but I can do it with you. For Americans listening, I'm not entirely sure what the bogan translation is. So I might have to get um, Sean to, you know, translate Australian into American. But this is a very important question. So we were children of the 80s. Now, as children in the 80s in Australia, we all had some sort of classic 60s or 70s car growing up and each family had loved that brand or that make for irrational reasons. 
I was a child of a valiant family, much to my mum's disgust. I will point out, now this is so uniquely obscure Australian, and I reckon my dad had about five or six valiants. None of the freaking things worked, by the way. One of them didn't have reverse for six months. One of them didn't have seat belts. And another one, we turned blue in in the back because the exhaust fumes didn't leave the, um, the pipe. They came into the car. But tell me, Sean, seeing as you uh, did a stint in Franger, followed by Tyab, tell me, what was your family's classic make of car that they were passionate about for no good reason? Well, so my, my dad being a POM didn't really sort of engage in it. He just was very practical. But my brother absolutely was a Holden Tirana fan. So ah. by, de- <laughs> by default, and I, I think partially for all the reasons that you, you mentioned what was happening with the Valiant. So, yeah, yeah, no, Holden Tirana. <laughs> Tirana. Absolutely, it, it was so bogan. It was just, oh, yeah. The yeah, big I guess difference. It's, yeah, probably the, like, the closest thing. It's probably it's like, it's like a redneck, I guess you could say. Um, it's like a cashed I mean, up a whole, redneck, a, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's a whole like, political thing there that we don't need to go into. But uh, it's, it's probably the, like, the, the closest you could probably drag it to. It's probably a yeah, cashed up redneck. Yeah, that's a good way. Cashed up redneck. It's the best way of putting yeah. it. Okay. All right. Now, um, for those people listening, the reason your brother probably liked a Tirana is because they work. The problem with Valiant, yes. they didn't work. They were very big cars and they were good at towing, but they just well, never su- worked. Supposedly they're also chick magnets, but, you know. <laughs> I, I, yeah, okay, thank you for – That's why I said supposedly. My, yeah. Don't want to – well, that's – yeah, my family – my dad was very passionate about his valiant, so I don't want to go down there. I'll never ask that question of him again. Um, all right, Sean, this has been a great conversation. Now, before we leave today, uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more uh, about weekly and daily updates about commodity prices or commodities yes, that are so impacting agricultural commodities? Good, good. Great question. Thanks, Shay. Um, they can either join me on LinkedIn just by typing in Sean Mod. I think I'm the only Sean Mod, but uh, it'd be Sean Mod, Modco Capital Associates. And I actually just uh, started up my YouTube channel. Uh, cooking with commodities so you can find me there and i've got all my stuff there it's got to get uploaded and that's that's where you can find me and then and then if you join my club uh we actually do a cooking with commodity live uh once a month um yeah basically to pretty much do like what, what we're doing right now so except there'll be more than just one person drinking <laughs> Yes. Uh, Sean, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I will absolutely beg and plead to have you back on so we can talk about the agriculture market because it is constantly evolving. It's never static. Uh, Sean, this conversation has been a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Have a good one, Shay. And that brings our two-part agricultural commodities podcast to a close. What did you think? Leave a comment here on Spotify because I would love to hear your thoughts about today's series. Don't forget, make sure you're following Cocktails and Commodities so you never miss out on what rocks are making news, which commodities are moving markets, and the company's trying to get it out of the ground.